Good evening, everybody. Hope you're all having a good day. Great week. Um, grab your Bibles. Turn with me, if you would, Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Luke 14 and 25. you're in Luke 14, would you say amen? Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king? Going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor... How shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father, I thank you for your presence that's here today. I thank you that we get to come and worship you tonight. I pray that you are doing things in our midst, even while we worship, even while we listen to uh, the, the word of being delivered today, I pray that you would uh, be working on us, that you would uh, have your healing power flowing in this place, that deliverance would be happening, that people would be uh, freed from things that they've been struggling with. Lord, I pray that you would touch us today, restore us in the name of Jesus. Amen. A few weeks ago, the last time I was with you on a Wednesday night, I, we talked about uh, three steps to discipleship, and we, we picked up in the book of Luke, and uh, we talked about three things that Jesus said. Uh, he said, if anyone desires to come after me, you need to do three things. Do you remember what they were? Number one was deny yourself, okay? Number two, take up your cross, how often? Daily. Daily. And what was number three? Follow me. Uh, denial is the process of learning to say no. This is the no part of discipleship. It's saying no to myself, no to my old ways, my old uh, desires, uh, my old uh, uh, habits, the things I used to do, the things that I wanted to do. It's saying no. And, and what Jesus is referring to here is an internal motivation. Being a disciple means you are motivated internally. Remember we talked about how when you were a kid, you were motivated externally? 
you were, uh, maybe if you were like me, you, you were whipped or punished or uh, got things taken away from you or whatever, however you punish your kids or they are, 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 or you were punished. But it, that was an external motivation that would hopefully instill in you one day an internal motivation to do the right thing. Remember that? But what Jesus is saying now, being a disciple is more than, well, I'm not going to do that because if I do that, I'm going to get in trouble with Jesus. It's, no, I'm not going to do that because I love Jesus and I don't want to do that to him. Are you with me? So it's an internal motivation. It's the no of discipleship. The second one is, is the cross. And, and this is your personal battle, your desire to do the will of God. This is the yes of discipleship. If denial is the no, taking up your cross is the yes. It's saying, yes, Lord, I will do what you've called me to do. Wherever you've called me to go, that's where I'll go. Whatever you've called me to do, that's what I'll do. Whoever you've called me to be, that's what I'll be. Jesus did not want to go to the cross. Remember, he said, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. He did not want to go to the cross. But he said yes to the cross or yes because his desire was to do the will of God. So when we say yes and take up our cross daily, it is a making a decision every day to say, yes, I will do the will of God in my life even when it's not fun and I don't want to do it. So we've got the no of discipleship. We've got the yes of discipleship. And then finally, it, it, we, talk, we come to following him. As we learn to say no, and as we learn to say yes to Jesus, uh, it inspires us and strengthens us to, say, to follow and stay close to Jesus. We got to stay present and we got to stay uh, near to Jesus. And the thing about Jesus is, he always seems to be moving. You know, he's, he's going here and he's going there, but we got to stay close to Jesus because if we're staying close to Jesus, he will lead us through every temptation, every trouble, every trial. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as long as I'm with him, I'll be okay. Are you with me? And so this is staying close to Jesus. This is following him. I want to be a disciple. I want to be closer to Jesus. But before you can become a disciple, you should consider the cost. I want to take everything we've talked about, and I want to go a step deeper. And I want to look at what Jesus said right here in these verses. Uh, because Jesus is going to give us some tests of discipleship. And what he's teaching us here is I want you to consider the cost before you take the trip. He said, I, I want you to sit, consider. He said, a man doesn't go out and decide to build a tower before he thinks, do I have enough money and materials to build that tower? Because he said, I don't want you to lay the foundation and then get stuck and can't finish it. And, and, um, and then you look like a fool in front of everybody and they're mocking you because you don't have, they say, look, he didn't have enough money to finish the project that he started. Jesus says, I don't want you to do that. And he says, uh, you know, listen, if an army comes against you, wouldn't you sit down and say, okay, I have 10,000 men. Can I defeat the army that's coming with 20,000 men? If the answer is yes, then you go to war. If the answer is no, then what do you do? You send out a delegation to say, what are the terms of peace? Let's save a lot of bloodshed. We surrender. What is it? And so Jesus says, we have to consider the cost before we go into these things. So he said, I want you to consider the cost of becoming a disciple before you agree to becoming a disciple. I want you to think about what it's going to cost you. Uh, he teaches, it begins right here by saying that uh, great multitudes were following Jesus. And I want you to note, a multitude is probably a pretty good number of people. A great multitude is even bigger. 
There was a great multitude of people following Jesus. But notice there uh, in verse uh, 30, 25. What is, what, look, look at the word multitude there. Is that singular or plural? It's not a trick question. It's, very, it's got an ES on the end. Not just one great multitude was following Jesus. They were many great multitudes following Jesus. Jesus knew how to draw a crowd. Jesus also knew how to get rid of them. Because Jesus isn't just about a crowd. Jesus isn't just about converts. Jesus isn't just about filling stadiums with people who, who uh, will, will say a prayer and then never make a life change. He is about people getting on a journey and becoming followers of Christ, becoming disciples. He said, go into all the world and make what? Disciples. So he said, I, 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 want, you, I want people to get on the boat with me. And if you're not... This is a good getting off place. Jesus chose this moment with the crowds gathered around, packing out wherever he was. He said, this is a good time to separate the disciples from the wannabes. Let's give them a test. Let's, let's give them a test. Let, let, let's let them figure out for themselves where they stand. And here's what he said. Notice what he said in verse 35. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a, a verse or, or a statement that Jesus uses on several occasions. He even uses it in the book of Revelation. Even who, he who has an ears to hear, let him hear. Now, we all have ears. Do your ears work? If you're not saying yes. Do your ears work? Of course your ears work. Can you, if your ears work, can you hear? Yes. To one degree or another, you can hear. So what is Jesus saying? Why would he say to a crowd that is full of people who have working ears, if, you, if whoever has ears to hear, let him hear? Why would he say that? Well, he's saying, he, he recognizes that there is in a crowd full of people, there are Tons of people who will have the, the spiritual insight, the, the, the wherewithal, the whatever it takes to be able to hear the message in what Jesus is saying. And then there are other people who will never hear it and they will never get it and it will never make sense to them. Lindsay talked about this just a few moments ago when it comes to the principle of, of tithing. It's one of those laws that we don't all understand it, but it's still at work. And Jesus is saying, there are things that are about to be at work that I'm going to talk about. Some of you will get it, and you will get on board, and you'll follow me, and you will become a disciple. Others will leave and never have a clue what just happened. I don't know, man. That, he was talking a lot. Talking about building a tower or something and running out of money and people mocking you. And I was, I don't, I don't even know what he was talking about. Crosses and, you know, family and hating everybody. And I don't even know. We leave and we don't even get it. I mean, you realize that there are people that come into this house on a regular basis and they don't have ears to hear. And they come in and they leave exactly the same way. And they come in and they leave out and they're nice and they talk to people and they, maybe they have a good time, but the word of God never gets in because they don't have ears to hear. Disciples have ears to hear. Here's what Jesus is saying to them. I'm going to give you a test. Uh, being a disciple is not cheap. It is not easy as we have learned. Uh, so let me give you some tests as you consider the cost. Would you like to take the test tonight? Are you sure? The first test in verse 26 is the family test. 
if anyone comes to me, watch this, and does not hate his father and mother and wife and kids and brothers and sisters, and yes, even hates his own self, he can't be my disciple. Here's the first test. Do you hate your mom and dad? Do you hate your kids? Don't answer that. <laughs> Depends on the day. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, do you hate your siblings? Do you hate yourself? Well, Jesus, what are you talking about here? I mean, seriously, have you ever read this verse and said, Jesus, what are you talking about? I mean, this does not um, add up to me. We have to hate our parents, our spouse, our kids, our siblings, even our own selves. In, in order to love Jesus, I have to hate everybody in my life that matters to me. Does this line up with the rest of what Jesus is teaching? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So this is the old way. This is under the old law. Okay, You've heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors, tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father is in heaven is perfect. So here's the deal. Get, get what Jesus is saying here now. Let's put them all together. I must hate my family. I must hate my wife, my kids, myself, my parents, my brothers and my sisters. It's okay to love my neighbors. And it used to be okay to hate my enemies. No longer. Now I'm supposed to love my enemies. So wait a second. I hate all these people that matter, and I love the people that I don't really like. Is anybody like thoroughly messed up by all this? Would you like to work it out? Would you like to know what in the world Jesus is trying to say? Because this does not make sense. Well, here's the truth. In the Hebrew, uh, backing up, as you know, the, the, or, or most of us know, the, the, um, the New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Um, and, and, but as, we, as, the, as the words were used, spoken, and then translated from language to language, there are concepts that began in the Hebrew uh, that stayed in their culture even though their language changed. And by the time we get to English, sometimes the word and the meanings and the concepts don't match. So in the Hebrew, or, or in, in, in our English language, think about how you feel when you say you hate something or someone. It often carries with it, with it um, a, a level of bitterness, um, possibly anger. Um, maybe even it's, it's, it may even be vindictive. 
right? Uh, when you hate something or someone, it's like a passionate, vibrant, I strongly dislike you more than just I don't like you. No, 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 I hate you, right? Is that right? That'd be about right in, in American society, in our, in our English today? Well, if you go back to the Hebrew, it means something a little different. It doesn't actually mean exactly that. Now, the words are actually, by definition, very similar, but in its use to us today, the word hate means something else. But if you go all the way back to the Hebrew, uh, you think about when Jesus, or when God said of Jacob and Isaac, um, Jacob and Esau, who were brothers, he, the Bible says that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. Now, God wasn't vindictive against Esau, and he didn't despise Esau, and, and he didn't have uh, anger against Esau at that moment. Uh, but what the word hate means in the Hebrew, the concept is actually translated uh, to love less than. So let's put this back now. So we'll start with, with Jacob and Esau. The, the, what God is saying is, I love Jacob a ton. I love Esau less than Jacob. All right? We go back to Matthew now. You have heard it said, you should love your neighbor, but it's okay to love your enemies less than your neighbor. But Jesus said to us, but I say to you, you shall love your enemies. You don't get to love your enemies less than the people that you love, than, the, than your loved ones, than your friends, than your family. You don't get to love your enemies any less than that. Now, that's a pretty serious statement. Because it's one thing to say, well, I don't, I don't get to hate my enemies. It's another thing to say, not only do I not get to hate my enemies, but I have to love them the same and treat them with the same amount of love as I do with the people in my life who do matter to me put it in perspective. I want you to think about the person in your life that drives you nuts. It seems like as they do the will of God in their lives, that will is to make you miserable. <laughs> they are totally sold out to taking up their cross daily to make your life a living H-E-double-L. <laughs> okay, think about that person for a moment. You got them? Come on now, we all got them. We all have them. Somebody we just don't like. Somebody we just don't get along with. Somebody we just cannot stand. That the moment they walk in the room, you go, oh, Lord. Nod your head at me if you're thinking of somebody. It's okay. It's okay. Now, think of someone, the person you love on this earth more than anyone else. I mean, you just absolutely love them. Your spouse, your parents, your kids, your best friend. Uh, whoever it might be, on this earth, a, a physical person. I'm not talking about Jesus, but like a physical person, okay? I mean, now, when this person walks in, you feel good. You, you light up a little bit. Look, you're all smiling a little bit now, right? Your, your physical features are all changing. When I was talking about the hate, you were like, hmm. And now you're like, hmm, all right? It's someone that changes your, your mood and your attitude, okay? You got the two people? Nod your head at me if you've got those two people. This is what Jesus just said. You don't get to love the first one any less than you love the second one. Oh, Jesus. Seriously, Lord. How do you expect me to do that? That's what he said. You've heard it said. It was easier to say, you can love your neighbor 
and love your enemy just a little bit less. But I'm saying to you, you got to love them both the same. Jesus, always raising the standard, always pushing us harder, always making us do things that are not fun and that we don't want to do. And here we go again. You have to love the person that drives you nuts just as much as you love the person that made you smile. This is challenging from Jesus. Now, we take it back to Luke chapter 14 to where we begin. Let's put it back into context now, and it's going to work out a little bit better for you. A little bit. Not a lot, just a little bit. Jesus says, unless you hate your parents, your spouse, your kids, your siblings, and yourself, you cannot be a disciple. Now, We're going to take out the word hate. We're going to put in the Hebrew concept of what Jesus is talking about here. And I didn't make this up. Read just about any commentary in the world that you want to read. Anybody with any sense, they're all going to say basically this exact same thing. Okay? Here's what Jesus was saying. Unless you love your spouse less than you love me, you can't be my disciple. Unless you love your kids Less than you love me, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you love your siblings and your friends less than you love me, you cannot, you are not qualified to be a disciple. And get this, unless you love me more than you love yourself, you're not qualified to be a disciple. Like Sunday I was preaching in Sugarland, and um, when we got off the cruise and had a great service there, and uh, you know things were going well. And in the context of that sermon, I made this statement. I was I was using an illustration from my wife and I's marriage, and I made this statement that I love my wife more than anyone else on this planet, but not more than God. And it was crazy to see the reaction when I said that. I, I love this woman more than anybody else on this earth, but not more than God. Some people were like. And some people were clapping. They didn't know what they're clapping for. They're like, man, that sounds great, Pastor. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, it was really, it was this mixed kind of, uh, you know, and then, you know, it was like the awkward, I don't know if I'm going to clap. You don't know, y'all have y'all seen that before? Kind of like right now, you don't know where to laugh or not. Same, same kind of deal. Um, and it was this crazy thing because I, I, I <laughs> what are you, why are you laughing at me? I did not laugh at you when you were up here. Oh, I did. Okay, you're right. Um, (laughs) um, But here is the reality of what Jesus is saying. You have to love me more than everyone else. Everybody. Everybody else. Ladies, when you were asking God for a husband, maybe uh, many of us, many of you still are, and um, pray that God gives you the right husband. On your list, hopefully you had something on the lines of loves Jesus, right? Lives for God, wants to be a Christian, doesn't mind going to church, just, you know, somewhere on that scale. But how many of you honestly would say on your list, it said, Loves Jesus more than me. 
like, I mean, that, like, wait a second. He's supposed to love me more than everybody. No. You want, him to, you want a disciple? Find a man that loves Jesus more than you. Find a man that is willing to lay it all on the line for Jesus. Because here's the deal. I don't even know where I'm at in my notes here. Uh, This is what Jesus is demanding to be a disciples. Because here's the thing. If you find a spouse that loves Jesus more than you, you've actually found a very good thing. Because you found a man that if he loves Jesus more than you and has committed his life to be a disciple of Jesus, you're going to find a man that loves you just as Christ loved the church. That gives his life for you just as Christ gave his life for the church. That's willing to put you first before everything in this world, including himself, except for God. And that is exactly what you want. You found a man that's going to be a good husband, a good father, a good provider, a faithful friend. Uh, He's going to be there for you. He's going to take care of you. He's going to lead you into the house of God. He's going to lead you in the ways of God. You have found a good thing. And so you say, well, I want him to love me more than everybody. Sure, everybody but Jesus. And if he loves Jesus more than you everything else will fall into place he'll be a good father to your kids he'll be a good friend to your friends he'll be there because the disciples of Jesus are becoming like Jesus and that's what Jesus was so Jesus said this I want you to love me more than everybody including yourself And in this world, in this society, especially in America, not so much in other countries as you travel the world and you study the the moves of God and the ways of God and the messages that are being preached uh, in other parts of the world, but specifically in America, uh, being preached is a gospel that is about half Jesus and half self-help and and half prosperity. That's three halves if if you're counting. Um, but, but, it, but it, it, we want, I, listen, I want you to love yourself. You should love yourself. You should love the person that God made you to be. You should love the person who God created you as you should love all the things about you that God put in you, but you should not love yourself more than you love God. And we have to be careful in teaching all the great things that that maybe we do we don't make it more about ourselves and our self-help and bettering our life and not enough about loving jesus first anyway i'll get off of that soapbox before i get stuck second part verse 27 are you okay tonight we getting this worked out is it making more sense to you now okay And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, this is a very similar verse to the one we quoted earlier when we talked about uh, if you want, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow after me. Right. It's a very doesn't that sound very similar to you? And much of the same principles uh, can be applied when he's talking about the desire to do the will of God in your life, when he's talking about uh, your, your willingness to fight your personal battle in order to get the will of God done in your life, your sold-out commitment to him. It's very, very similar. But uh, at the very same time, 
There are some different truths that apply here, some unique things that he's talking very specifically and very literally about. He's not just talking figuratively here. He is literally painting a picture that he wants us to get and wants us to understand. It is a picture that every Jew in the room could clearly see and clearly understand. Now, they had no clue at this point that Jesus was really saying, I'm going to die on a cross. Jesus knew that. They did not. But they did understand uh, the context of the illustration that he was giving. This is the second test. Uh, 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 is, it's, our, it's the test of our cross. Crosses, you see, were a very real part of Jewish life. In, in the days of Jesus. Uh, how many of you watched uh, on, on the History Channel the, the series The Bible? Okay. Uh, if you didn't watch it, I, I highly recommend that you watch it. Don't get caught up in every single detail being accurate because it's not. Just you get the spirit of the age and what was kind of going on. It was, it, was, it was very fascinating. It is very bloody. So uh, we tried to watch it with our kids. That was a little difficult. It's very, it's very intense. Uh, but as you see Mary and Joseph coming back uh, with Jesus as they're coming back from Egypt, there is a moment in there where as they're coming into Jerusalem or, or Bethlehem, I forget where they were coming into at that, at this scene, uh, you see crosses all over the place. They're just crosses everywhere. I mean, they're just, there's a mountain with crosses. I mean, there's 20 or 30 or however many, there were just crosses everywhere with, with some men hanging on them and others with dead bodies still hanging on them. Because this was a very real part of Jewish life. Um, the Romans had taken over the world at this point. The Romans had defeated the Greeks and, and taken Israel from the Greeks. And, uh, and now they are living under the rule of the Romans. The Romans hated the Jews. They hated the Jews because the Jews couldn't just live quietly and realize that life as a Roman was better than life as an Israelite. And so the Jews uh, were always making trouble. There were always uprising that they would have to go in and, and settle. There, there, were, there were always things going on. There, there were men called dagger men who were, were a sect of Jews that would walk around with daggers in their cloak. And as they would walk through the marketplace... Uh, they would look for men, uh, for, for Roman soldiers that would be standing there. And if they had half a chance, they would pull out this dagger, this, this long knife, and they would stab them and kill them and take off running through the street, calling that, you know, the Messiah is coming back and Ju the Jerusalem is going to rise up again and, you know, the Romans are going to fall and all this stuff. And so these types of things were happening and it had caused extreme hate with the Romans. And now the Romans... Uh, they started out ruling with an iron fist, and now they are really ruling, ruling with an iron fist. And so what they literally devised uh, the crucifixion as an extreme means of torture. They came up with this concept of sending a man to the cross as a way of torturing him. And what they, the, the, the whole thing about the cross was, they didn't want you to die from your wounds. They literally sat down and planned out what's the most excruciating pain we can send you through without killing you so that then we can go hang you on a cross in a public place for everyone to see while you hang there for sometimes up to five or six days before you died. You didn't die often from any individual wound. 
Maybe you died from an infection, or but most often you died from sheer exhaustion because the way they, uh, the way that the cross worked was uh, all of your weight was hanging on nails on your hands and your feet. Of course, you know this. Uh, but the, what that does to your body as your body falls and slumps down, it is, does not allow your lungs to breathe. So in order to breathe, to, to take every breath, you literally would have to lift with your feet and, and pull with your arms to lift yourself up just to take a breath, and then you would collapse back down. And so after, as you can imagine, days of this, while you're steadily bleeding, losing blood, losing energy, and they're only giving you enough water just to keep you alive in order to torture you longer, most men died from sheer exhaustion. But they didn't take them out into a back pasture somewhere and do this. They took them into public places where when you went to the marketplace... You saw it happening. Imagine with me, if you will, you pull up with your family to do a little Christmas shopping at Parkdale Mall. And out in the parking lot, there are five crosses with men hanging, bleeding and barely clothed, literally dying. And the world is just functioning all around them. People are going in the mall. They're coming out with Christmas music is playing. People are, people are singing Jingle Bells and Hark the Herald and everything else, and it's cold, and um, it wouldn't be snowing here, but um, all these things are going on. People are, people are at the Taco Bell, and they're at Burger King, and they're driving through. There's people waiting at the bus stop. There's people shopping at Cavenders. Somebody's getting their tires changed at, at discount tires. Somebody's across the street at Target, and everywhere you are, you can look up, and always present with you are these five crosses sticking up in the air. Everyone driving by sees these men literally dying. This is the world in which Jesus was speaking to. And so when he said, unless you bear your cross, you cannot come after me and be my disciple. This painted a very vivid picture for them. It suddenly all came into being. Let's fast forward to modern day for just a moment. Just up I-45, when Lindsay and I are headed to Dallas or Waxahachie to see her family, uh, we, we pass through Huntsville every time there and back. So I, I drive through there many, many times every year. Huntsville, as you probably know, is the home to a very, very large um, system of um, prisons and jails. Right? How many of you know that? If you don't know... We also house there our criminals who have been convicted of capital crimes. And they are awaiting the death penalty. When a man commits a capital crime and he's convicted, you go through the process of appeals. You appeal to one level of court and you appeal to another level of court and you go through these processes of appeals to try to get it overturned. Or even if, you're, even if the conviction is not overturned, just that the sentence is lowered. And if all of these are turned down and your sentence and your conviction remains the same, then the last order of business is you send a letter to the governor pleading the governor to overturn your sentence, to allow you to live. And if that doesn't happen, one day, you find yourself sitting in a little room, 
Maybe they've brought in a few people, friends, family, spouse, whoever it might be. Oftentimes they'll bring in a priest or a pastor to uh, be with, uh, to, to maybe help comfort the, the convict or to help comfort the family. You sit down and you have a last meal of sorts. Maybe you have an opportunity to say your final words. And then it's time. The guards lift you up out of your chair. They put you back in your handcuffs and your chains. They lead you out of that room and you begin a walk. You begin a journey. And as you leave the room down the hallway on both sides, it is lined with prison guards. And as you begin walking, a guard to your left says, dead man walking. Dead man walking. As you go down, guard after guard continues to say the same thing. You walk down the long hallway and you are making your way to the room where you're going to be executed. And the only thing you hear, dead men walking. You find yourself in a room, and there's a number of ways that we execute people in this uh, throughout, throughout our history. Uh, of course, if you remember the cowboy days, there was a lot of hanging uh, that would happen. We don't do much of that anymore. Uh, then we went to the, the gas chamber, uh, and, and uh, there, then the electric chair uh, for many years. Uh, if you ever saw the movie The Green Mile, you'll understand what that is about. Now, the most popular way, and I don't mean popular in a good way, I just mean the most common uh, way uh, in this country today is uh, lethal injection. You walk in, they strap your arms to a table, they stick you with needles, and in just a few moments they push the buttons, the, you're injected with these fluids, and you fall asleep and never wake up again. Dead men walking. As you're making that journey, you're not dead, but you're as good as dead because all the appeals are done. The conviction is set. The sentence is over. You're dead. You just haven't stopped breathing yet. Your sentence is being carried out. The verdict has been rendered. It's all over but the actual doing of it. So in Jesus' day, when you picked up your cross, you were beginning that very same walk. People would be going about their day and suddenly here would come a man carrying a cross, bearing his cross And you looked at him, and he may not have been dead yet, but he was as good as dead. It was over. There was no saving you once you're at to this point. You've gone through all the courts. You've gone through all the appeals. Uh, the Roman court, uh, court was very similar to our court today in its appeals process and its judgment processes. Uh, and, and so they went through much of the same, many of the same systems. All that was done. And so now, everyone looking at you, including yourself, realizes, I am a dead man walking. I am as good as dead. It's just a matter of time until I stop breathing. 
Maybe it's a day, maybe it's six days, depending on uh, who you are and how long you could last. But it was only a matter of time. So you're going from point A, which uh, is where the, the appeals were over and where it was said and done, to point B, which is where you drew your last breath. And in between, you're a dead man walking. You're a man bearing his cross. In our lives, if you want to be a disciple, point A is the moment that you decide, I'm going to be a disciple of Christ. Point B is the moment when you breathe your last breath and you find yourself with Jesus. Everything in between to be a disciple is saying, I'm a dead man walking. I'm as good as dead. My desires, my old self, my old ways, my old plans, my old habits, my old thoughts, my old everything, they are over with. I have, I have given up my rights. I have given up my plans. I have given up my future. I have turned it all over to God. I am a dead man walking. I'm not dead yet because I'm not to point B yet, but I am right here in the middle and I've turned it all over to him. This is a serious commitment that Jesus is talking about. And so he said, if you don't do this, if you're not willing to be a dead man walking for me, then you cannot be my disciple. So he follows that right back up with, you better consider the cost. Don't start the journey if you're not going to be willing to finish it. Don't say yes to being a disciple if you're not willing to give up all of your rights and your plans and your desires and your ideas and your feelings and your worries and your stresses. And if you're not willing to give it all up, don't even say yes in the first place because this is what it means to be a disciple. So I ask you again the same question we've asked over the last few weeks. Do you really want to be a disciple? Because if you do, you're just like the man carrying his cross through the marketplace that everyone looked at and said, that's a dead man walking right there. Jesus was not playing. He wasn't trying to get a good offering on this day. He was letting us know, I'm serious about people who really love me. The good thing about it is this. Saying to Jesus, you're my Lord. I can do nothing without you. I've given up my rights. I've given it all up. I've laid it all on the line for you. Let's go back to Luke chapter 9 for just a moment. Verse 24. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Here's what he's saying. Whoever lays down your life and says, I'm going to become a disciple and I'm going to become that dead man walking, bearing my cross. Whoever does that will actually save your life. But whoever tries to save it will lose it. This is another fascinating scripture that we get lost with our English language because there's too many lives in this verse. Where in reality, Jesus used two different words here. In other Gospels that recount the same stories, there's two different Greek words used here. The first one, he says, for whoever desires to save his life, uh, this was the lower life. This was, uh, you know, just the, the lowest level of life. If you want to save life your way, you're actually going to lose it. But whoever loses your lower life for my sake will actually get the higher life, the Zoe life. 
the, the one that Jesus said when he said, uh, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. That's what he's talking about. So here's what Jesus said. If you refuse to get on the journey, if you refuse to say yes to being a disciple because you want your life, you want your rights, you want your plans, you want your ways, you want your ideas, you want to do it like you want to do it, no problem. You can have it, but you're going to lose it in the long run. But if you lay it all down and you take up your cross and you bear your cross and you begin this journey and you say, Father, I'm going to be a disciple. I'm going to walk and I'm going to be a dead man walking. I'm going to lay it all on the line for you. You are my Lord. You are my God. You are my Savior. You're my King. You're my everything. You've got it all. Then as we take up this cross, he said, I'm going to take your lower level life and I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to give you the God life. I'm going to give you life and life more abundantly. And that's the exchange that he makes. Yes, we're laying ours down and we're giving it all away but he says, I've got something better for you in return. But it's got a big cost. It is scary to lay down your life. It is scary to lay down your plans. It is scary to lay down your dreams. It is scary to lay down your rights. It is scary to lay down your motives and your ideas and your mindsets. It is very scary. But Jesus said, if you do, the reward is going to be great. The cost is big. The reward is is greater. Doing the will of God has a price. Everything. It's going to cost you everything. Are you willing to pay the price? Consider the cost. Consider the cost. I've got to love Jesus more than everybody else in the world. I've got to love Jesus more than my family. I've got to love Jesus more than my wife. I've got to love Jesus more than my kids. I've got to love Jesus more than myself. i had to love Jesus more than everybody. And then I've got to be willing to lay it all down for him and become a dead man walking for Jesus. I'll be a disciple. It's worth the price for me. I stopped and I considered it like Jesus told me to. Uh, like, like the man building the tower. Do I have all that it takes? I stopped and considered it. Do I have it all? Do, do, can I make the journey? Can I make it from point A to point B? I know it's going to be rough in between. I know it's not, it is not easy to carry a cross. It is not easy to make that journey. But I'm going to do it. I'm saying yes to Jesus. I want to be a disciple. Here's the question for you. Do you pass the test currently? And are you willing to say yes to Jesus? You can close your Bibles.